Chapter Three of *The Hawk of Egypt* by Joan Conquest, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter Three, Lore, but women's rum cattle to deal with, the first man found to that his cost, and I reckon it's just through a woman that the last men on earth will be lost. G. R. Sims. Damaris was the only daughter of Squire Heathencourt. Her mother was an Italian from the Udino, where the hair of the women is genuine Titian red and the eyes are blue, which perhaps accounted for her colouring and some part of her temperament. Her type of beauty was certainly remarkable, given, it must be confessed, to a certain amount of fluctuation, and she danced divinely, which gift must not be counted as a parlour trick. She was slow in her movements and quiet in her manner until she talked of horses or anybody she loved. Then her great eyes would flash and her laugh ring out. Also, she would gesticulate, as her mother had been wont to do, until the climate, maybe, of a northern country had served to repress the spontaneity of her Latin mannerisms. She was simple and unsophisticated, and would have made a splendid little chum, if only one out of every three men who met her had not been consumed with the desire to annex her for life by means of a gold ring. "'Dads!' she exclaimed, two months before the beginning of this story, having enticed him to her bedroom one night and offered him cream chocolate as he sat at the foot of her bed, facing her. "'Dads, what am I to do? Guy Danvers says he is coming to see you to-morrow, and I—I I am sure it will only turn out to be—well, you know. But, golly wog, dear, I'm the one to be pitied. This makes the—how many is it?' "'I don't know, Dads, and it isn't the number. It's the awful habit they've all got into. And I don't understand anything, and I don't encourage them, do I? Do lend me a hanky. This chocolate has burst. And what am I to do?' "'Turn a deaf ear, or a cold shoulder, or put a brave face on until—' said Dads, retrieving his handkerchief. "'Until what? Until the right man comes along, darling, as he surely will.' The girl's lids suddenly dropped until the lashes lay like a fringe upon the white cheek, over which very slowly but very surely crept the faintest of rose colours. "'Hm!' said Dads to himself, as he made great use of the hanky. "'Do smoke, dearest.' "'No, thank you, pet. I couldn't hear.' The man who worshipped his wife and adored his little daughter looked round the white and somewhat austere room, and ran his eye over the bookstand at his elbow. Books on horses, a treatise on bulldogs, the New Testament, essays in French and in German— the History of Egypt in Arabic, Budge's Book of the Dead, and King Solomon's Mines. But what am I to do meanwhile, dads? And the girl threw out her hands imploringly. Be cold, deaf, or brave, gollywog, as I have suggested. But I've been all that, and it's quite useless. Do you think it would help if I let my hair grow and did it up in a tight knob? I think it would help a lot if you shaved your head entirely, Kitty. And the man leant forward and ran his head through the red curls. Once upon a time Damaris had read the advertisement of certain powder, guaranteed to darken hair of any colour, and life having been one long torment, owing to her violent colouring, she had, greatly daring, acquired a packet, had followed the directions by mixing the powder with water and covering her head with the muddy result, and to make assurance doubly sure, had sat with her clay pate for an hour instead of ten minutes near a fire, had cracked the clay, washed her head, and found her hair grass-green. She had chopped the verdant masses off without a thought, and had ever after refused to allow it to grow to a hairpin length, and to her father had only granted the privilege of calling her by the pet name of Gollywog. 
"'Would you like to travel a bit, pet?' And the man smiled, though his heart was heavy at the thought of the blank which his gollywog's departure would leave in the home and the daily round. "'Travel, travel, oh, darling, to Egypt? Why Egypt? Why not France or, or Italy?' "'Because I've got to go to Egypt some time or other, dads. I've got to see the desert and the mosques and the white and blues and oranges and camels. It's in me here,' and she thumped her nightgown above her heart. "'I shall never be happy until I've seen them all. Oh, dads, I wonder if you can understand it. It sounds so—so so silly. Tell me.' And the man moved over to the head of the bed and took his daughter gently in his arms. "'I'm so out of the picture somehow here, dearest,' said the child, striving as best she could to describe what was really only the passing of the border-line between girl and womanhood. "'This terrible colouring of mine, for one thing. Why, amongst other girls, I am like a remaker stuffed into a Heath-Robinson folio, like a palette daubed with oils hung amongst a lot of water-colours. I want to find my own nail and hang for one hour by myself, if it's on a barn-door or the wall of a mosque.' as long as I am by myself. "'Good Lord!' said the man inwardly, as he patted his daughter's arm, then aloud, "'As it happens, Gollywog, darling, I had a letter from Moraine yesterday, asking me to let you go out to her in Cairo for the winter, and see as much as possible of the ordinary sights. We'll talk it over with Mother to-morrow.' "'Oh, Dad's, how wonderful! And can't you and Mother come? And, oh, can I take Willington?' "'I think so, dear, if he hasn't got hydrophobia.' And the man bent to pat the head of the great dog which had crept from under the bed at the sound of his name. And later Dad stood at his window, smoking two last pipes, whilst a glimpse into the future was allowed to him. "'Can it be, can it possibly be,' said he, puffing clouds of smoke into the creeper, to the annoyance of many insects, "'Big Ben Kellim, and the estates run alongside. "'Wonder if Teresa has noticed anything?' And, by Jove, of course, he's at Heliopolis, getting over his hunting accident. I wonder— And Damaris sat at her window, with her arms round the dog, who longed inordinately for his mat. The desert, she whispered, the pyramids, the bazaar, life-adventure. How wonderful! There came a long, long pause, and then she added, as she turned towards a coloured picture of the sphinx upon the wall, and who cares if the nail is a tin-tack or a screw? As it happened, it was destined to be the jewel-hilted, double-edged, unsheathed dagger of love. And fate, having mislaid her glasses, worked her shuttle at hazard in and out of that picture of intricate pattern called life, and having tangled and knotted together the crimson thread of passion, the golden thread of youth, and the honest brown of a deep, undemonstrative love, she left the disentanglement of the muddle in the hands of Olivia, Duchess of Longacre. Her grace was over eighty. Of a line of yeoman ancestors ranging back down the centuries to William Carew, who had fought for Harold, she had been, about sixty-five years ago, the Belle of Devon. Against the warnings of her heart, and to the delight of her family and friends, she had married the Duke of Longacres, whose roving eye had been arrested by her beauty at a meet of the Devon and Somerset, and his equally roving heart temporarily captured by the indifference of her demeanour towards his aristocratic self. She had lost him, to all intents and purposes, two years after the marriage, but blinding her eyes and stuffing her ears, had held high her beautiful head and high her honour, filling her empty heart with the love of her son and the esteem of her legion of real friends, 
showing the bravest of beautiful faces to the world, until a happy widowhood had set her free. Some years of absolute happiness of the simplest kind had followed, the marriage of her son and birth of her grandson, who had cost his mother her life. Then the following year had come the Boer War, and the heroic tragedy of Scipion Kopp, which left her childless. After that, many years of utter devotion to her grandson, who adored her, then the Great War and the Battle of the Falkland Islands, which left her absolutely bereft, with the care of the boy's greatest treasure, even the grey parrot, quarter-deck, deco for short. Methuselah of birds, it was possessed of an uncanny gift of human speech and understanding, and had been promoted, through generation to generation, from sailing-vessel via merchant service to British navy. As time and tragedy worked hard together to silver her hair and line her face, so did a veritable imp of mischief, bred of her desolation, seem to possess the old darling. She cared not a brass farthing for the opinion of her neighbours, so that after the death of the great queen, who had been her staunchest friend, she had instructed Maria Hobson, her maid and also staunchest friend, to revive the faded roses of her cheeks with the aid of cosmetics. Things had gone from bad to worse in that respect, until her pretty snow-white hair had been covered by a flagrant golden peruke, and the dear old face with a mask of pink and white enamel. Her eyes were blue and keen as a hawk's, undimmed by the tears shed in secret during her tumultuous and tragic life. Her teeth, each one in a perfect and pearly state of preservation, were her own, for which asset she was never given the benefit of the doubt. Her tongue was vitriolic, her heart of pure gold, and she owned a right hand which said nothing to the left of the spaces between its fingers, through which daily ran deeds of kindness and streams of love toward the unfortunate ones of the earth. Her death was invariably of grey taffeta or brocade, bunched at the back and trailing on the ground. There were ruffles, of priceless lace, at the elbow-sleeves and V-shaped neck, a plain straw poke-bonnet served for all outdoor functions, and an ebony stick called the wand, by the denizens of the slums who adored her, completed her picturesque toilette. The majority feared this grand dame. A minority, if they had had the chance, would have fawned upon her in public and laughed at her or caricatured her in private. Those who really knew her, and they lived principally east of London town, would willingly have laid themselves down and allowed her ridiculously small feet, invariably shod in crimson, buckled, outrageously high-heeled shoes, to trample upon their prostrate bodies, if it would have given her pleasure to do so. She adored young things, and had an enormous family of godsons and goddaughters, out of which crowd Ben Kellum and Damaris Hethencourt were supreme favourites, and about whom she had been weaving plots when she had written her letter of invitation to the squire. She smoked three castles, which she kept in a jewelled Louis XV snuff-box, and had a perfect tartar of a maid, who simply worshipped her. Of a truth, a long description of a very old and very wise woman, of whom the great queen had once remarked to her consort, I wish I were not a queen, so that I might curtsy to Olivia. And in this wise old woman's jewel-colored hands fate placed the twisted threads of passion, youth, and love, and a wiser selection she could not have made. A bronchitic cough had taken her to Cairo, just as a sooted-up lung, left behind by the pneumonia which had followed the hunting accident, had taken Ben Kellum to Heliopolis, and for recuperation of body or mind there is nothing to equal an Egyptian winter, 
even in a tourist-ridden centre. Ben Kellum, Big Ben for short, on account of his six feet two, was heir to Sir Andrew Kellum, Bart, whose estate joined the lands of Squire Heathencourt, whom he looked upon as his greatest friend, and vice versa. Educated at Harrow, Ben Kellum and Hugh Cardinali had been known on the hill as David and Jonathan, so that the crimson, golden, and brown threads were more than uncommonly twisted. Ben was heavy in build and slow in every way, but he was still more sure than slow, and had never been known to give up when once he had set his mind to the accomplishment of a task, and although he had stood in absolute awe of beautiful Damaris since the day she had lengthened her skirts, yet he had determined to make her his wife, even if it meant following in Jacob's footsteps to the tune of waiting many years. He had confided his determination to his godmother, who had immediately taken the case in hand, and proceeded to throw buckets full of cold water upon his suggestion of being on the quay or doorstep to welcome the girl to Egypt. "'My dear man,' replied the tactful old lady, as she rasped a match on the sole of a crimson shoe and lit a fragrant three-castles, "'do remember that everything will be new to the child. She will be one vast ejaculation for at least a month.' Let her get over that. Let her realize that you are close at hand, but not the least bit anxious to be under her feet, and you'll see. Remember, she is very young, just like a bit of dough, which must be stuffed with the currants and raisins of knowledge, and then well baked in the oven of experience before it can be handed across life's counter to any one. Further, take care not to blunder into any little trap she may set for you out of pique. But, dearest, I always do blunder when I'm out of the saddle. "'Well, even if you do, for goodness' sakes, keep your mouth shut. "'Be the strong, silent man. Women love em. "'We revel in being clubbed and pulled into the cave by the hair. "'We may squeal a bit for the sake of appearances, "'but we cook the breakfast next morning without a murmur. "'But just ask us to honour the cave by placing our foot over the threshold, "'and as sure as anything you'll find yourself making the early cup of tea.'" End of chapter 3 Read by Sibella Denton for more information, please visit LibriVox.org.